Welcome to another episode of the Chefs and Guests podcast series on the Spoon Mob podcast. This week, I am joined by Chef Sheridan Sue, who's out in Las Vegas. Uh, he's It's a really interesting conversation we have because he bounced around for a long time with his career uh, working at different restaurants on the Strip and then eventually had a food truck, launched his own restaurant, which is a unique situation that we get into because it was actually in a hair salon, um, which is really odd. But And then wound up opening a couple different restaurants. Uh, he had Flock and Fowl. Uh, two different locations for that, wound up opening uh, Fat Choy inside a casino, and then Everygrain, uh, which is his latest restaurant. Went out to Vegas. It was actually our last trip on a plane before COVID and coronavirus and everything. It was like January 2020. We wound up eating there. Sheridan's no longer involved with Flock and Fowl. It was a disagreement with ownership. They separated and everything like that. I don't know if he can relaunch the brand or not. There is still a location. Uh, of Flock and Fowl, but he's not involved with it. I mean, you can find it on Instagram, but his two main things now are the the Every Grain and Fat Choy. So Every Grain's open for breakfast, lunch, and then Fat Choy is open, I think, for lunch and dinner. So you're basically able to get uh, at two of his restaurants, combine them, you can basically get uh, a meal for every part of the day if you would like. But really interesting conversation, just how, you know, he kind of went through culinary school, how he wound up in Vegas, you know, his wife is super supportive and and has been a big influence on his career too, as well. Getting nominated for a James Beard Award too, as well, which is, he's been pretty open about like, that's something that he actually wanted, you know, to achieve when he was younger and a chef coming up. So, and we just kind of get into Vegas and, and all that stuff, but it's a really interesting conversation, just different perspective from somebody who's basically been working in kind of like almost the tourist capital of America with Las Vegas. A lot of people use it as kind of a barometer for pretty much the economic health of the entire country. So we kind of get into that too as well, because every time there's like a recession or a downturn in the economy, Vegas really, really feels it. So we kind of get into that and coronavirus and all that stuff too. But you could follow them on Instagram at Chef Sheridan Sue. You can also follow the two restaurants at Fat Choy LV and then at Eat Every Grain on Instagram too. So make sure to give them a follow if you wind up out in Vegas. Check those spots out too as well. It's really delicious food. He's super talented. So uh, we were able to finally get him on the podcast after, uh, I think originally I did an Instagram post about Flock and Fowl and then uh, he commented on it. I reached out to him but never heard back. And then eventually we were able to kind of get scheduled and everything. So it was great to have him on the podcast and and just chat about his career and everything. And the Vegas food scene is a little weird because you have all these restaurants on the Strip, but then you have some great restaurants that are just scattered around town. Um, but definitely check his out. Uh, those are the places that I would recommend. Um, there's also that uh, that really popular uh, Thai restaurant too as well. I forget the name off the top of my head, but you actually need reservations for that one. And there's a couple other places too, and, and Sheridan recommends a few places too as well towards the end of the podcast. So without any further delay, this is my interview with Chef Sheridan Sue of Eat Every Grain and Fat Choy. Thanks for taking some time to come on the podcast. Really appreciate it. You know, always thankful for anybody who's able to do it and is interested in doing it. So I got the chance to eat at uh, one of your restaurants in Vegas when we were there just before the start of the pandemic. You were still involved with Flock and Fowl at the time. That has since rebranded and under new ownership, and we can get into that later. But had a great experience. It was great food and and everything too as well. You know, chicken wings were outstanding, and and the bon mi was awesome too. So, but kind of just start where I start with everybody. You know, how did you kind of first get started in cooking? Was it something that you grew up with? Is it something that you always wanted to do, or was it just kind of first job and just kind of never left the industry? So when I was a little kid, grew up in L.A. Chinatown. Uh, my mom's first job was 
at a Chinese restaurant called Golden Palace. And she worked seven days a week. And oftentimes when I wasn't in school, then I would be hanging out at the restaurant. The cooks kind of, you know, just saw me every day, took me in. I ran around the kitchen and, you know, I just from there, like, saw dishes being transformed from raw ingredients into these beautiful plates. And uh, that magic stuck with me ever since. I was um, probably four years old at the time. I mean, you've been in it since the beginning then, basically, since as long as you can remember, right? Essentially just around restaurants. Yeah, all of my memories from my childhood have been in a restaurant. I've always knew I wanted to be a chef from then on. So after high school, I uh, went out to Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. Just been cooking ever since. Why did you pick the CIA? Did Because, I mean, that was across the country from where you were. So was it just you wanted to see New York? Or, like, why didn't you pick something that was on the West Coast? Because there were a couple schools, at least back then, I think, probably, that were along the West Coast, right? Absolutely, yeah. There was a very good school out in San Francisco as well that I looked at. I Johnson and Wales was another one I looked at. You know, just the reputation, the facilities that the CIA offered, it was it surpassed anything else that any other school could offer. Just diving into it, I just wanted to get into the best. You have a couple different restaurants, so do you think now the environment that we're in at culinary school like still makes sense? For some of your employees, if they're, you know, interested in either getting into the industry, you know, really hardcore or, you know, ascending the ladder and everything, or do you think it's kind of a case-by-case basis or hands-on experience is more valuable? What's your take on culinary school? Uh, For culinary school, it's definitely a case-by-case basis. I mean, if you could, you know, afford that $20,000, $30,000 a year, uh, whatever they're charging right now, it's, it's a great way to learn. It's it teaches you all the basics. Uh, once you get into the kitchen, you're you know, much more ahead than somebody just starting out. If you're willing to put the work in, I would probably tell you to stay away from going into culinary school and just you know work from the bottom as you know whatever it is like prep cook, dishwasher. The chef needs you to jump on the line to work the fry station on a Saturday night. You know you just get in there and do it. There's no better education than just getting in there and doing it, right? I mean, if you could, you know, afford to take on that that tuition, yeah, I would recommend it. But for most people, I would say the real world experience, it's it's um, the, the best way to learn. Going backwards a second, did you, when you started working in kitchens, did you start it out as like a dishwasher? Did you wind up start working for your mom and her restaurant? Or did she like put you on the line or how'd that work? Um, yeah, I did, uh, dishwashing, did prep work in the beginning before I went to culinary school. So back then, like, you had to show work experience before you were allowed into school. Now, I think these days, so just take anybody in. But, um, yeah, I, I definitely just started from the bottom. When you were in culinary school, did you pick French or was, cause I know like CIA has like three different, it's French, Italian, and I think Asian. Did they have that at the time when you were going through? Or did you just have to pick French or Italian? It was mainly French. It was, uh, education was in French techniques. I would say, I think our entire Asian course was probably three weeks long. Italian, yeah, it was another three week block, but yeah, it was mainly French. You worked while you were in culinary school, right? When you're going through it, because you were on a two year like program. Yeah, I was on a two year, um, worked for some catering companies, um, on the weekends, did some work at, at the campus restaurants. 
did they have just like a posting or was there like a program that would help you get in with some of those companies or how did you wind up doing like the banquet and catering stuff? Well, the banquets and catering, um, I got in through a friend. I would say on the weekends, that entire place was probably staffed with CIA students from the kitchen into the dining room. Uh, so they, and it was right by the school. So they um, always had a big pool to, uh, to get people from. And then after you graduated, you wound up at the Ritz-Carlton, right? Did you start working there after? That's right, yeah. After graduation, um, I met a chef. Uh, his name's Gabriel Critter. He has his own restaurant in New York right now. And this was when he just left John George to kind of do his own thing. And so when he started out at the Ritz-Carlton Central Park, then uh, I came on board. Was there any sort of like... Was he just taking a handful of culinary students that recently graduated or was he, um, was it like you had to go in and apply and like cook for him or how did that all kind of work? Uh, so that process, um, he actually was uh, a speaker at one of the graduations at CIA and that's when I found him and, you know, I stopped him, uh, talked to him, you know, see, I, I wanted to see if I could you know, get a few minutes of his time and you know, we just ended up talking and he said, you know, uh, we just opened the Red Skeleton in Central Park. Uh, would you like to come down? You know, just take a look. So I went down, uh, took a look, spent a day over there uh, doing a stutch. And after that night was over, he said, if you want a job, uh, when do you graduate? Then, you know, yeah, I'll save you a spot. You'll always have a spot. So uh, that's kind of how it happened. Did you get to explore like a bunch of New York, like when you were in school and before you started at the Ritz-Carlton? Because I'm sure like once you started working, like that was probably all you did. But were you able to explore any of the city while you were there in your off time or? Absolutely. Um, you know, uh, back then, I think when I was first starting out, chefs at the school would always say, if you had a free day or a free couple of days, you know, take a train down into the city and you know do a stodge. A stodge is where... You know, you go into a restaurant kitchen and, you know, you spend a day, whatever they need, whether it was peeling shrimp or, you know, peeling onions. Like, you just spend a day in the kitchen and you see how uh, they work, you see how they do things. And it's always unpaid in my situations. At the end of the day, you know, they'll feed you and, you know, you thank them and hopefully do it again or do it again somewhere else. It's, uh, it was a great experience. What are some of the places that you were able to stage at? Was there anything like notable, anything that people would recognize? You know, one of my favorite places that I stodged at was a restaurant called March. So it was a great restaurant. Like from what I remember, it was like a two-story townhouse uh, that was converted into a restaurant. Yeah, I thought the food that they were doing was so special. And one of the dishes that I saw while I was there, it, it just stuck with me even you know, 20-something years later. And uh, one of their signature dishes, they took a maitake mushroom, poached it in a parsnip broth. So they took whole parsnips, boiled it, and then just uh, retained that broth. And then they would take a whole maitake mushroom, poach it in that broth. So it took on the sweetness of the parsnips. And then when they served it, it was that maitake mushroom in a bowl with some of the broth, some edamame beans and olive oil. And to me, that was like, mind blown like it was so simple but the flavor was just insane and 20 something years later i still remember that dish and another place uh cafe balloon was pretty memorable as well um really good chef over there at the time was um andrew carmelini and i went 
in there. I was I spent most of the time in that basement, inside the basement kitchen. And uh, probably like the last half hour of dinner service or or so half hour hour, and he would bring me back up onto the line so I could watch um, all the cooks kind of uh, do their magic. So when you were had some off time, was there anything in the city that like you really enjoyed doing that didn't involve like cooking? Like was it like Central Park? Was that your thing, or was it you know going to the ocean or? Um, it was, uh, my time in New York, it was really fun because I was a young, very young guy. So I walked all over the city. However, I didn't have much money, so I didn't get to explore as much as I wanted to explore. You know, just being able to check out like the city's um, street food scene and, um, you know, like peeking into different restaurants. That was, that was mainly my time in New York. Unfortunately, I was a broke cook. If I if I went back today, I might have a different experience. So you were there, I think, at uh, Atelier for like two years, and then you decided to move back home to L.A., right? Yeah, I had enough of the snow, had enough of the East Coast winters, and went back home to L.A. And from there, uh, I worked with a chef. His name is David Myers. And yeah, really amazing person, really amazing chef big influence on on what I do. How did you wind up linking up with him? Did you apply for the job before you moved back or was it after you moved back? You wound up just kind of applying to a bunch of places and he responded. How did that all come about? So that year, uh, Chef Gabriel Kruder and David Myers had shared an award with some other chefs. They came out uh, with that Food and Wine Best New Chefs, and they have both gotten the award. And when I said, let uh, Chef Gabriel know that I was thinking about going out to California. So he said, oh, I know a guy in California. His uh, name's David. You know? And that's kind of how... Um, I connected with Chef David Myers. So I had looked him up and uh, I loved uh, what that restaurant was doing. The restaurant was called Sona. And it was uh, it was a California restaurant, French techniques, a lot of Asian influences um, on their menu. It, it was a very special kitchen because they never they focused on serving tasty menus. And these menus would just change out every couple of days, every week. And it was just constantly evolving. It was just a great experience to learn so many different dishes. Was that Michelin starred when you were there or was that after the fact? Because I know they only had like the guide for like two or three years before it went away. And Yeah, the Michelin wasn't in town when uh, when I was there. I think about a year and a half after I left in, uh, the Michelin guide started in LA. So it was just after you left? Right. Yeah, I was there. Uh, it, like They probably opened for a few months at the time and i saw it go from when i started there we probably did like eight to ten covers a day um eight to ten guests a day and by the time i had moved on then we're doing about 80 to 90 covers a day so it just went from you know going in doing prep and then you know waiting for somebody to show up to eat and then we were just busy every day was it the same size kitchen staff the entire time so like when you had that uptick was there wind up being more cooks or was it still just you know four or six or however many of you guys that were in there yeah it was always a small kitchen whether we did a low number of uh covers or yeah because it was just a small kitchen um, everything was made from scratch and when you looked at 
our refrigeration unit. At the end of the night, everything was gone. So we prepped just enough for that amount of reservations. And, you know, if we didn't use it, you know, chef would make us throw everything out. And the next day we start fresh. So we made everything in-house and everything was made every single day. It was, um, it was this pretty special place. From there, I think you wind up going to Vegas. How did that come about? Oh, when I heard Joe Robichon was opening his first place in the U.S., like I almost fell off my chair and I said I had to had to do it. And somehow through another friend, I was able to meet the executive chef of MGM Grand and I had called him, gave him a phone call and said, hey, you know, this restaurant uh, you have coming here, uh, Joe Robichon. Would I be able to apply for it? Or like, how do I go about getting into this kitchen? And he ended up introducing me to the head chef of Joe Robichon. And I ended up going, making a trip out to Las Vegas on uh, cooking for him. And after that, he just offered me a job. So I was part of the opening team of that, that restaurant. Was that your first time in Vegas? Had you ever been there before or no? I had been there uh, as a kid, um, going out to Circus Circus, and but my first time working there, going into you know working in a casino environment. Yeah. Do you remember what you cooked as part of the interview? Uh, it was not exactly. I, I remember he just put maybe a dozen ingredients into a basket, and he said, "Here, make uh, make three dishes for me." And it was literally like if you looked at the basket, it was an eggplant, a banana. You know, a piece of eel and it's like yeah i think he was messing with me at the time as well because when you look at the ingredients it's, there's no way you can make a plate out of this that that would be delicious so i did the best i could and yeah he looked at it shook his head you know and he said well good luck <laughs> and yeah i ended up uh yeah just doing the best that i could and yeah in the end he liked it enough where uh, he offered me a job so that was also at Joel Rubichon, you were part of the opening team. So that was your first experience opening a restaurant too, right? Yes. What was like the most challenging part of that? Because is it because it was such a big name, like there was a lot of pressure on everybody to like get it right for the debut or what was kind of the most difficult or challenging part of being a part of that? It's, uh, you know, the most challenging part of it, it's knowing that his reputation was on the line. And it was at a time where Joe Robichon was in Vegas and he was always there in the kitchen. Whenever a dish was put up, like he would be at the pass and he watched every single plate go out. And if it wasn't up to his standard, he would push it back and you would be, be the asshole. So in that kitchen, um, all the dishes would be, would be cooked and timed perfectly. So whenever multiple stations... Uh, would do these dishes, they would go up to the pass and they would bring, you know, whatever is like six dishes or eight dishes out to the table all at the same time. So if you were the one guy who messed up, then all, every single dish would be thrown out and we would just start over. So it was just uh, making sure every single thing was perfect. Uh, it was up to his standard and it was, I would say that, that was just not even... I guess, you know, the pressure that we put on ourselves to make sure he's satisfied. But, you know, knowing the reputation of, you know, somebody like him coming out to Vegas and this would kind of set the precedent of, you know, what restaurants were to come in the city. It was, um, 
it was a great experience because when we did the opening, a lot of executive chefs, sous chefs, took a step down to become line cooks at that restaurant. And I would say, you know, looking back now, the amount of talent that was in that kitchen is incredible because you can look all across the U.S. now and guys that were part of that opening team are now, you know, renowned chefs, GMs, restaurant owners. We all spent time doing the opening there. So how long were you there, like six months or was it like a year before you moved on? I was there uh, just under a year, and uh, I felt like, even although I learned a lot, it was a great restaurant, I enjoyed everybody that I worked with. The work was also very monotonous, because um, I could take a box of asparagus, and you know, you would be peeling it for five hours a day. Yeah, and uh, one of the dishes that I did was uh, we made a flan with uh, lettuce puree, and then uh, it was uh, like lobster and caviar on top of the flan. So the lettuce puree, we would blanch one head of lettuce in a pot of water and we would toss that water out. And then we would start again, put another fresh batch of water, blanch one head of lettuce and then toss that water out and then do that again. And I'll just do that over and over for about 20 heads of lettuce. And um, it was like that, that um, amount of detail kind of drove me crazy as well. And yeah, I knew... I knew it was a great experience. However, it wouldn't translate to ultimately what I wanted to do. So I needed to find something else. So um, I ended up uh, going back to Los Angeles for, for something different. How long did you go back to L.A.? I was back in L.A. probably for maybe a year and a half. Was that Social House where you wound up working? Um. No, actually, I went, so I left Joe Robichon, went back to L.A. Uh, there's a chef, uh, her name's Dominic Kren. Uh, he's out in San Francisco right now. So she was going to open a restaurant in downtown L.A. So I left Joe Robichon, and I agreed to help her do the opening for that. So uh, plans didn't work out. Uh, I think her investors pulled out, and then she ended up leaving L.A. to go out to San Francisco. Yeah, so that restaurant never happened, and... While I was there, I bumped into David Myers on the street, and he said, hey, what are you doing? It's like, you know, I came out here to help open a restaurant, but, you know, things aren't going as planned. And so he said, you know, I have this new um, idea. I want to open a restaurant. You know, why don't you come back to Sona? And while I'm building out this new restaurant, you know, I would love for you to be a part of it. So I ended up uh, going back to work at Sona. After that, you wind up being a sous chef at uh, Social House? At Social House. And uh, Vegas kind of pulled me back in. And I had some buddies that were opening up uh, Social House over at Treasure Island. And they said, you know, I think this could be a really good opportunity for you. It was, um, I, I wasn't sure that I wanted to go back to Vegas. But it was a chance to do a high volume restaurant and kind of jump into Asian cuisine, which is the direction I always wanted to go in. Um, so over there, it was pretty special because it was the first high-volume restaurant that I worked at. Um, on a Saturday night, we did about 800 to 1,000 covers for dinner. And you know, just being able to do that and learn how to set a restaurant up to do that, it, it was like on another level. Now, as a sous chef, that was that also your first time managing like other cooks in the kitchen? It was. Yeah, it was. Uh, we had a big staff. We probably had about 20 cooks in the kitchen. And for the first six months, I was there about seven days a week from nine in the morning till about midnight. So long days, 
um, a lot of work, but it was a great crew. And then I think two years later or so, you wind up going to Wazuzu. Was that your next stop after that? When I uh, opened another property called Encore, and they were looking for um, a sous chef over there. And I met uh, Jeff Tila over there. Yeah, he really liked the, the food that I was doing. Or yeah, I had went over there to cook for him. And you know, he said he was looking for a sous chef. And I just kind of jumped at that opportunity. For chefs kind of working on the strip like you did, is that just kind of commonplace? Like everybody kind of bounces around between like the different hotel restaurants every year or two or so? Is that kind of just the normal way things work? Um, I would say, yeah, I, I guess in our profession, it's very common for people to be in a place for a year or two and then jump into another restaurant. It was a time in my life where I was just so hungry for knowledge. I wanted to see all the different styles and, you know, just even not just cooking, but also the way a chef would approach the kitchen, how they would manage people. There was just so much to learn. And I felt like by spending two years here and two years there, I was able to pick up the best from uh, each of them. And then after, I think, Wazuzu, you get your first executive chef job, right, at uh, Red 8? No, I was still, uh, so it would be a sous chef position over at Red 8 as well, yeah. So at Wazuzu, I was working with Jet Tequila, and then when I went to Red 8, I was working with a chef. Her name was Jennifer Nguyen. They needed um, quite a bit of help in the kitchen. There was some interesting times over there. The cooks there kind of took over the place and just ran it, and it just needed a lot of work. But it was very interesting, and I couldn't wait to get out of there. And then you go to Kamsa because you were only at Red A for like, I think, like eight months, right? And then you went to Kamsa. Yeah, yeah. And then I went back to Social House. They were going to open up a property in Mexico City. So um, Chef Joe Elevato had reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we're doing another, um, another branch out of Mexico. If you're interested, I would love to have you. When I heard Mexico City, I just, yeah, jumped for that opportunity. So that restaurant actually opened, though, and you went down there for a little while? Yes, it did open, uh, not while I was there. Okay, so you just helped do kind of like the conceptualizing of the restaurant from the States? Yep, I helped build the menus. Um, I found uh, the staff for them over there. And unfortunately, um, yeah, it just didn't work out with the timing. When I went down there, um, they said, you know, the restaurant should be open in three months. And it just didn't happen that way. They said, got the best uh, construction crew. They, these are the guys that built all the Starbucks. They built all the McDonald's here. They're real professionals. And that three months, it turned into six months, and it turned into nine months. And construction was just never done. Yeah, the way construction works over there, it was people would go in at nine. Uh, they would work on building the restaurant. Eleven was lunch till one o'clock, and then they came back at one. And at two o'clock was siesta. So from two to four was siesta time was their break and then they came back to work at four and at five they got off work so in a day they were probably working on construction for three to four hours construction never got done uh while i was there unfortunately so at the time uh cosmopolitan was opening up and david myers was opening up uh Kumsta, uh out at the cosmopolitan and he wanted to know that i'd be interested in taking the chef job over there that was your first executive chef job, right? Correct, yeah. 
What was, I guess, the biggest challenge with being an executive chef for the first time? I'd say the biggest challenge, uh, I guess, uh, just putting the right people in the right place, making sure everybody stays motivated. That's probably just the biggest challenge. The hotel itself was under construction, too, at that time, right? Right. I was uh, probably the last uh, executive chef hired on over at the Cosmo at the time. And at that time, all the restaurants had done their hiring. I was still in Mexico. So when I came back, it was hard to find people because we were still kind of in a recession as well. That was another challenge. During this whole time, too, like your wife, I think, was like going to school and then eventually moves out to Vegas. Were you guys like going back and forth on the weekends? Like you would go back to like L.A. or I think she was in school like Berkeley or something. And she would come out to Vegas when she had time or like, how are you guys like navigating that? Because you I read that you were working like ridiculous hours at the Cosmopolitan to like get that restaurant ready. Like you were basically sleeping there in like an empty hotel room. <laughs> Yeah, for the first, uh, I think, couple months, I didn't leave the hotel. They just gave me a room, and after work, I just went up to the room, slept there, and then at 8 or eight in the morning, I wake up and go right down to the kitchen. It was just crazy hours. Uh, I would say after a couple months is probably, yeah, when I took like, my first afternoon off. But, yeah, it was hard on her just because, yeah. Even though I said I would be done by done with work at eleven or twelve at night, you know, she would come in and she ended up, you know, sitting at the bar waiting for me. And even though I had planned on getting off work at eleven or twelve, it'd be one thirty before Ashley left. Just because there was always always stuff to take care of. Then, you know, like you mentioned, kind of the recession probably already happening or is just kind of starting to happen. Hotels lay everybody off. I think you get laid off, too, as well. But then you had a bunch of executive chef offers for, you know, L.A. and Vegas and everything. You decided not to take any of those. Were you just kind of done with the whole kind of corporate restaurant thing? Or what was the reason at that time that you made the switch? At that time, I was ready to jump into another executive chef job. The day I was laid off, I probably got you know, four or five different phone calls, but I hadn't told anybody. But I guess we're just travels around really, really quickly. And I got some phone calls and you know, they said, hey, if you are interested, you know, we would love to have you. And yeah, I think I needed a week, two weeks just to kind of process my, my next move. The hours that I was working at, my wife, she was not happy with. She said it was, you know, either I would have to figure something out or she would be gone. At that time, the whole food truck, the popularity of food trucks was coming up and Kogi had opened in LA. Yeah, they were just getting really popular. And in Vegas, there was probably a couple of trucks at the time. Yeah, I said to her, you know, maybe I'll just buy a food truck and kind of create my own schedule. And yeah, she just was very excited about it. And yeah, we just, found a food truck off of Craigslist and started uh, a thing called Great Pal. Did you have any idea what you're getting into when you got the food truck? No, I didn't. I didn't have much in savings at the time. I saw a food truck and it goes $6,000 on Craigslist. So I figured, you know, I would spend uh, maybe a couple grand wrapping the truck, another couple thousand on permits and different appliances. So all in, I was thinking 10 grand, get a business started. And so I just went out, bought the truck, and yeah, it was a big mistake. Big mistake. 
the story goes, at least that I heard, that your wife winds up finding you like this small little cafe inside a hair salon because it's just the food truck kept breaking down. So how long did you guys have the food truck before you moved into the other space? Uh, I probably had the food truck for four to five months before we said, okay, this is probably not working out the way we thought it would. Yeah, that's when we went back on Craigslist and found a slow cafe space. And it was inside of a hair salon. So when I first saw it, I said, no, this is not going to work. You know, nobody's going to go into a hair salon you know, for food or drink. And this is nuts. Just kind of walked away from it. And you know, I just pumped myself up said, all right, I'm going to make this food truck thing work. And we tried to go out for another event. And my refrigeration breaks down. And I said, okay. I'm going to go back to that hair salon and look at the cafe one more time. So I went back there and manager of the salon said, if you want it, you know, it's seven, it goes 750 a month. And it was, it was small. It was maybe 50 square feet. Like it was just a counter and it was enough for me to put a couple, couple stools in front. Yeah, that was it. And my food truck wiped out my savings. 750 was. All I could afford, and I put that in, and I was able to buy enough ingredients for the first day. Were you able to use parts of your food truck for the cafe at all, the oven or something like that, or was it just you just got rid of the food truck completely? No, I still I still kept the truck. I was like, I, I'm such a dreamer, so I wanted to keep the truck. I wanted to make it work, and but keeping the truck. We were able to do some really cool events. So we ended up um, opening at the hair salon. And I would say our first day there, I sold two two dishes. It was like $7 a dish. So I made 14 bucks. That first day was hard because I was open maybe, what was it, eight hours? And, you know, just selling uh, two items. I went home, cried a little bit, said I have no idea what I'm doing. And my wife came to me and she said, you know what, just focus on doing good food and people will come. You got to trust it. And those words just kept me going for, yeah, the rest of the way. And then you guys kind of, I think, slowly get busy, but then eventually you guys have a feature in like the New York Times that come out. Did you feel the shift changing before that article came out or was it after that it was just like overnight? We have this line around the block now, like what's going on? You know, we slowly got busier and busier as the months went on. Uh, one of the food writers here in Las Vegas just reached out to me and said, hey, where are, where are you? He just kind of fell off the face of the earth because he would be somebody who covered the strip and that was it. And I let him know that you know, I had walked away from the large-scale restaurants and just kind of started doing my own thing. So he said, you know, I'll, uh, I'll do my best, you know, come down, visit you. So he came out, um, had, had lunch, uh, took some pictures and I keep put it out on Facebook or something and then kind of all the other food writers in town noticed. So they started coming to me as well and, you know, putting articles out and that's when we started getting busier and busier. It's crazy that like one thing, then all of a sudden just overnight it'll just change just by one little thing. Absolutely. I, you know, initially when I opened at the hair salon, for me, it was still a little embarrassing, I guess, just, um, you know, to go from, you know, a restaurant that was maybe a four or five million dollar build out to, you know, something that was in a corner of a hair salon where I'm paying 750 a month to rent out. And 
So I didn't really reach out to anybody, didn't tell, didn't really tell anybody about it. And I was just going to hope for the best, I guess. How far away from the strip was the hair salon location? It was on Trump Indicator. So if you go from, I guess, where the Excalibur is, and you go west on Tropicana, it would be a mile and a half. So it's still quite central. You guys just wind up just grow and you get a bunch of business. Was the plan always in your head to eventually see if your concept would work in the cafe and then eventually look for a bigger space? Or did it just kind of happen naturally? Because I know eventually I think you get an offer to kind of revamp the coffee shop in the Eureka Casino and everything. And that all kind of stems from, you know, your little salon restaurant that you had. Yeah. So the plan was always to see how much we could grow it. I mean, at the, at the hair salon, we went from, you know, having two seats, um, at the counter to, you know, having 14 chairs. So we, we kind of took over the entire lobby of the, of the hair salon. And it got to the point where whenever people came in, they weren't coming in for a haircut or to do their nails. Uh, they were coming in for the food. So it's, it wasn't a great relationship anymore with the salon and, they kind of wanted to push us out. At that time, my wife was pregnant, so she didn't really want the, she didn't want that negative energy. She didn't want to fight with them. So we were kind of like, we were a little bitter going out just because we had a lease with them, but they were very forceful in the way, um, how they wanted us out. So at that time, we, we still had the food truck. We got back on the truck and of course things, broke down again and again. That's when the owner of Eureka came came out and said, hey, you have a space available. If you want, you know, take a look at it. We only ask that you keep the chicken wings on the menu, a Philly cheesesteak, and the cheeseburger. You know, the rest, do whatever you want. So you basically just took, like, kind of the great bow menu and then just kind of merged it with keeping those three things and then were able to add some other dishes, too? Yeah, absolutely. He wanted a uh, great bow to be in in that kitchen to be in that dining room but um when you walked in at just that restaurant i don't know if you've seen it but right when you walk in it just screams diner and i knew keeping calling it great bow would do it a disservice so we kept um we kept uh kind of what they were doing before and just gave it a new life but um yeah so you when you go in you could have a bowl of one ton soup um, across from you, you know, somebody could be eating a hamburger and, you know, your friends would be eating a pork belly bun and sesame noodles and, uh, and buffalo wings. Why not? Right. So it was just a fun place. Uh, really great personality for the restaurant and it, it became a hit the first day it opened. How did you come up with the name? Cause Fat Choy, it's a pretty unique name. That's funny because my wife had come up with the name maybe six months before. So we were, sitting in a cafe and she just did a sketch of um, what the next concept would be. And so she did the sketch and then, you know, we just, you know, just for fun, you know, we just started tossing out names and, you know, Gonghei Fa Choi came up and it was, uh, it's a saying used during Chinese years. So it, it's a wish for good luck, prosperity, good health, um, all of that good stuff, right? So Fat Choy comes from Gonghei Fat Choy in Chinese ear. So how did you decide to open a second restaurant from there? 
from there, uh, I felt like at Batchoy, I probably hit my ceiling pretty quickly, maybe a couple of years into it. So I went on vacation to Taipei. Uh, that's where my grandma lives. And across the street from my grandma's house was a chicken rice restaurant. It was a Singaporean chicken rice restaurant. And chicken rice was a dish I ate my entire life growing up. And across from her house was this little restaurant called Boon Kang Chicken. And I ate their dish, Hainanese chicken. And I had shared a dish with my wife. And we both looked up after the first bite and we said, holy shit, this was one of the greatest dishes I've ever had in my life. And you know how when you eat when you eat a dish, you eat something so familiar, but when you eat something that is so leveled up, it's like you just feel like you're eating it for the very first time. Like something magical happens in your mind. So that's what happened to me. And I said, you know what, we got to do this, but we got to do this in Las Vegas. And if everybody else had grown up on chicken rice or everybody who grew up around me, but never experienced something at such a high level, you know, I wanted to be the guy to introduce them to that. And, you know, it's, it's such a simple dish. It's very humble, but chicken, rice and sauce, it's those three things together. And it just becomes magical when it's done properly. So I knew when I got back to Vegas, it's something I wanted to do. That was the main concept for Flock and Fowl originally, and then you kind of just added a few things. But it, the first location was pretty small, right? It was a pretty small location that you had. Yeah, so it was. Uh, we were zoned for uh, 12 seats. We went back to the city and we begged them for more seats. They ended up giving us 28 seats. Yeah, so it was a very small place. We didn't have public restrooms, so we, we relied on our neighbors. It was a costume shop and a pawn shop, and we had to rely on them for restrooms. It was a interesting experience. Was that kind of the same situation with like Great Bow, where you knew like, all right, we're going to start the concept here and see how much it can grow and then eventually move it somewhere else? Or did you always kind of plan on having multiple locations? Because at one point you had, you know, two different locations. That wasn't the plan at all, because I wasn't confident that Vegas wanted, wanted a chicken rice restaurant. So it really was just a restaurant born out of love, my love for that dish. So it was a passion project. I figured if I could do 30 plates of chicken rice a day, then that will pay the bills that would cover rent. And that's all I needed to do. Like if I could do 30 plates a day and that's all the customers I have, I would be fine and I would be happy. So it was, um, it was a restaurant that just started small and. Or I guess in my mind, it started really small. And the first day I opened, I saw the 30 plates in the first hour. And I was like, whoa, this is not what I expected. So the second day, I made 60 portions. And 60 portions, we sold out in that first hour again. And I was like, whoa, this is insane. So from there, it just got busier and busier to the point where on a, like a Saturday lunch, we would turn that dining room maybe five times for lunch and we were only open um from like 10 30 till till 2 30 or 3 30 so it was a very short uh service period yeah we had an amazing crew that knew how to work the dining room and work the kitchen and everything came out so fast and yeah it was a really fun space to work at 
Did you open the second location and eventually close the first one? Was that that was kind of what happened, right? Because the first one needed like renovations and stuff, right? Original. It was in a good situation. So we ended up closing that restaurant. We brought on some investors to open up uh, the second Flock and Fowl. And so we ended up um, closing that first one for about six months. Then that's when we went back to Sahara and reopened that other one. You wound up getting nominated, I think, for a couple of years for James Beard Award. And most chefs are that I've talked to and, and know most are kind of, you know, always say awards are great, but, you know, I never really wanted to win one or anything like that. But you, you're kind of one of the ones who was like, you know, when I was a kid, that'd be pretty cool to like actually win. So what was it like kind of getting that call and like being nominated for something that you actually, you know, as a kid, you were kind of like, that'd be really cool if that happened to me. And then it kind of does. It's one of those things like when I was starting out in my career, I wanted to be in these different magazines. I wanted my name in the newspaper. As like the more and more I'm in this business, those things became less and less important. So I would say when I first opened Block of Bell, it was never my point to open any of these awards. I just really wanted to share my love of this dish. So one day um, when the nominations came out, my wife woke me up and she said, hey, you're nominated for James Beard. Like, no, this is BS. You know, you're just playing around. I'm going back to bed. So she goes, no, 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 you're nominated. Look, you know, it's on the phone. It's on my phone. So, yeah, it's it was totally unexpected and definitely um, helped our business a lot. So nice. It was a nice feeling. Then after, I think, kind of that September 2019, you opened another restaurant, right? Every Grain? Yes, uh, we opened 2019, yeah. Was that your first experience with doing breakfast at one of your restaurants? Because that's just breakfast and lunch, right? Yeah, actually, uh, just lunch. What was the idea behind Evergreen? You know, uh, when I signed the lease for Evergreen, I had no idea what I wanted to do with the space. I'd floated some uh, different ideas, different concepts around in my head. It wasn't until I signed up for a phone for the restaurant. And when I got the phone service, they came back as 702-886-3857. So that 886, it said, you know what? I needed to open up a Taiwanese restaurant because 886 is the area code for Taiwan. I said, you know what? This is a sign. I have to open up a Taiwanese restaurant. That's something I've always wanted to do, but I have no idea how to pull this off. So I just decided it was going to be a Taiwanese restaurant. And that's how simple it was. <laughs> so I signed lease. The restaurant idea, the name, the concept, it was all last minute decision right before we opened. Then like a few months after you guys open, you know, kind of COVID happens. Everybody pretty much has to shut down. I think at some point, Flock and Fowl reopens, but it's under, I'm assuming it's just whoever your partners were. You kind of are no longer involved with that, right? Yeah, I had left uh, Flock and Fowl, I think, late 2018. From the moment we opened uh, Flock and Fowl in downtown, the relationship between me, my wife, the investors was not very good. We opened, we were underfunded when we needed more money to be pumped in. They came back and said, you know, we don't have the funds. And so me and my wife, we ended up floating the restaurant's uh, purchases and payroll off of our credit cards. And it put an extreme amount of stress 
on our relationships. I knew it, it just wasn't something that was going to work out for me. Uh, so I ended up leaving the restaurant late 2018. She stuck around um, until right before the shutdown. With the shutdown, I mean, you've been in Vegas for, you know, 10, 15 years. Definitely saw the, the financial recession from, you know, the auto industry and the mortgage crisis and all that stuff back in like 08, 2010. But we're seeing all that stuff firsthand. And then this coming around, was everybody just kind of like, oh, here we go again with like another kind of recession? Or was it just different because the city was locked, you know, shut down and locked down this time or? Yeah, it was it was different. In the past, we always knew things were going to come back, right? But in a city like Las Vegas, where we rely on tourism, when things got shut down, every hotel was closed. Every business around the city was closed. We didn't we didn't know when we didn't know when things were going to get back to normal. I guess it was just um, this time it was a lot harder. Because in the past, we knew Vegas would just bounce right back. And that was kind of the general feeling. This time, seeing every convention get canceled, and that's when it just got real. Like, all the tourism stopped, and Vegas was a ghost town. Did a lot of people leave Las Vegas, unlike other times? Because I feel like most times when something happens, you know, to like the economy, Vegas kind of contracts and then after, you know, a year or two, it expands back again. But did this time a lot of people kind of leave, you know, knowing that like this wasn't just the normal downturn that we have every decade kind of thing? No, I, I don't feel like a lot of people left. I feel even more so people started coming in more like other states were more regulated and their, their lockdowns lasted a little longer. So I felt like even through the pandemic, uh, Vegas uh, kept growing. It, I would say closures probably lasted about three months before like the first casinos were able to open again. Yeah, I would say from June or July of 2020, things were able to open again. Uh, that's when we opened for takeout. From there, um, things slowly got back to normal. Uh, I would say from the beginning of this year, January 2021, you know, up to now, it's been nuts. Vegas has been very, very busy. So it's um, amazing to see the bounce back. Vegas is a tourist destination, but some people say it's either, you know, a doll playground, you know, for some people, or, you know, you can do a whole bunch of different stuff there. But it's also kind of this crazy, accurate representation of an American city, really. Like, it's not New York. It's not L.A. It's really like Vegas is where you get kind of this melting pot of like everybody because tourism is coming in. But then you have like locals that stay and everything. Yeah, yeah, you can definitely say that because uh, here in Vegas, it's definitely Vegas is in its own bubble. When things are good, you could see Vegas kind of take that to an extreme. You know, right now, if you look at the pool parties in Vegas, you can't move. It's, you know, the nightclubs, the restaurants, everything is just packed. And I think if you look at the overall like confidence and the economy, like people are just, you know, people want to go out. They want to spend and I think they're tired of, you know, just being stuck in a house. So in Vegas, I think we definitely feel that, you know, 10 times whatever, whatever, um, anywhere else is feeling it. So there was a heyday for like celebrity restaurants in Vegas. Do you think that day is kind of past or do you think it's more of just maybe a pause until there's like a younger generation of, of chefs that become celebrity chefs, I guess, if you want to label them with that term? Diners especially have become uh, more sophisticated in how they look for a restaurant 
and they really do their research. So knowing that a lot of the celebrity chefs that have been brought into Vegas, uh, they're not typically at the restaurant. Uh, people have found other places to support, and that's kind of my feeling about it. So as Vegas grows, um, you know, more and more neighborhoods get developed, and uh, people are finding, you know, these new uh, neighborhoods to explore. And like right now, our Chinatown is booming. When I came here, it was probably maybe a couple of plazas down Spring Mountain Road, which is our Chinatown. And now it goes for about four or five miles full of restaurants and bars. And it's uh, pretty, pretty amazing to see. And also uh, the downtown out here is has exploded in the last few years as well. Both uh, Fremont Street, uh, which is the entertainment district, and Main Street, which is the arts district. So both have grown tremendously. And when you go out to these places, you see uh, the amount of people leaving casinos and restaurants, opening up shops. The people who dine there are usually out-of-towners as well. And they find these little gems around Las Vegas. And every month, every year, more and more days. Is Vegas missing any type of like cuisine or any type of restaurant, do you think? From what I can tell, there's a, a really good kind of, I mean, you could call it, I guess, ethnic food scene if you want. But I mean, you could definitely, you, know, you could find all the celebrity stuff and all the American cuisine and the fine dining and everything. But there is, you know, little hole in the walls, you know, great Thai places and, and some sushi places and stuff. Is there anything that is missing in Vegas or does Vegas kind of have something for, for everything? I'd say... Um... As a food city, Vegas is pretty well-rounded. Uh, oh, I am missing a really good barbecue um, out here in Vegas. I went to a place called Pecan Lodge in Dallas, and it just blew everything I've had in Vegas out of the water. So I guess really good barbecue. But there's a, there's a couple places uh, that opened up not too long ago. Uh, one called Soul Belly that I have on my list. And also, um, Big B's is quite good, but yeah, I'm missing the Texas barbecue. What's next for you? Is it, you know, looking at opening a, another restaurant in addition to the couple that you already have? Or is it just right now making sure that you have enough staff at each of the restaurants first before exploring any other opportunities? Or Yeah, I think right now I'm not in a hurry to open up another project. The staffing issues that are going on right now, I think I'm going to hold in just hold off and see what it'll look like in a year. But I think um, I'll always be around food in some way, one shape or another. And yeah, so no immediate plans right now, but I really enjoy what I do. And I'm loving my time over at Evergreen. So we got uh, eight, nine more questions. We ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast so the listeners can get kind of a compare and contrast. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your culinary career thus far? I'll say David Myers. What's the one item that's not a knife that you have to have in the kitchen that you can't live without? I have a, a coon spoon that I bring with me everywhere I go. Made popular by Greg Coons. And he kind of found out this perfect spoon that's two ounces. And it's the perfect amount of sauce for every single plate that he plates with. So I would say the coon spoon. Being a uh, restaurant owner, what's the one thing in a restaurant that you won't fix yourself? So if this thing breaks, you're immediately calling somebody. You're like, I'm not touching that. I don't care what it costs. Yeah, I guess um, anything that has to do with the gas, anything connected to the gas line, I won't 
I'll let the professionals take care of that. If I took care of it, there might be an explosion. So, What's the one restaurant in Las Vegas that you'd recommend that isn't your own? So the scenario I usually give is somebody's kind of connecting through Vegas, their flight gets delayed, they're there overnight, they reach out to you, hey, you know, where's a good place to eat? You guys are closed that day. So what's the place that you would tell them you should go over here? Uh, I'll probably send them to one of my favorite spots, Izakaya Go. Um, it's right on Spring Mountain and Valley View in Chinatown. It's an excellent spot. It's uh, It's got something for everybody, and it's a great place to grab a drink and a few skewers and um, a couple rolls and noodle dishes. What's your bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant that you want to go to? Haven't been to yet. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's all right. I'll have to get back to you in a couple minutes about that one. What's the craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you were working? I would say I did see somebody get stabbed, but uh, it was it was by accident. But um, we had a new cook in the kitchen, and she had a you know, one of those long uh, sushi knives with her. So she accidentally turned around, and whenever we work close and like close close proximity with other people. Uh, we always communicate. So, and we're, you know, passing by, you know, behind another cook, would say behind, or would say around the corner. So we would always yell out these things to avoid accidents. So one cook had, you know, was holding the knife, turned around, and, you know, somehow the other cook had turned around at the same time, and that knife ended up going into his hand. Yeah, it was purely an accident, I'm sure, but it was, uh, that was probably the craziest thing I've seen. My wife is right beside me. She said, a check stabbered through the head. What would be your uh, food or drink guilty pleasure? I know not all you know chefs drink. So is there anything like that you see in the grocery store that you kind of purposely skip the aisle because you know you know this thing's down there and, and you're just kind of like addicted to it? Um, you know, uh, every time I go to Trader Joe's, I have to pick up their truffle potato chips. They're quite delicious. And when you look at the back of the bag, White truffle is actually one of the ingredients. So it's to me that's amazing that you get a, a bag of potato chips with white truffle powder for three dollars. Maybe another one of my guilty pleasures. It's uh, soft serve ice cream. What's the kind of favorite dish, favorite thing you've ever cooked or created that if you look back through your career thus far, you can kind of point to like, that's the moment that you kind of figured it all out, that it all kind of came together and you're like, oh, I can definitely do this professionally at a high level. Um, I would say there probably wasn't like a specific dish, but maybe my time um, that I spent cooking over at Sona, David Myers really gave all the cooks. So once he trusted a cook, he gave you a lot of freedom to to develop recipes, to develop the dishes that make it onto the plate and in front of the guests. So I'd say really it was just my time there. And you know, being able to try out different dishes and bring it to them and you know, we would tweak it. My experience there just being able to try out all these different techniques, um, and then having those dishes in front of the guests probably gave me the confidence to do everything else I did in my career. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is. If you are, is there a moment, a scene, an episode that stands out to you the most about him? Or if you aren't, was there a culinary kind of personality when you're kind of coming up in the industry that you were kind of gravitated towards, whether it was like an Emeril or uh, like a Jacques Pepin or, or Jacques Pepin, I should say, or, um, you know, Yen Ken Cook, uh, anybody who's kind of on TV, you know, doing some cooking or anything? I love uh, Martin Yen. 
Um, I grew up watching Great Chefs, Great Cities. Um, that was on PBS back in the day. Graham Kerr, uh, I used to watch him. And I guess uh, I'd say Ming Tsai is somebody I really uh, I looked up to when, when um, I was starting out. Back to the bucket list. Did you have anything? Bucket list destination, bucket list restaurant? Uh, the perfect perfect thing would be eating uh, uni tostadas in Baja, Mexico. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, all that stuff. Plug away. Plug everything. Okay. So I'm on Instagram, Chef Sheridan Sue, S-H-E-R-I-D-A-N-S-U. My restaurant website is eateverygrain.com. And then you guys got social media accounts for every grain and I think Fat Choy too. And, and uh, Fat Choy would be fatchoylv.com uh, on Instagram, fatchoylv. And everything's back open. Yep, everything is back open. Thank you so much again for, for doing this and, and taking some time. And thank you for your wife for driving you for the, the second part so you could finish up with us. That's, that's pretty awesome. So thank you to her. Let's say hi. Thank and she's, you. Uh, she's an amazing uh, real real estate agent as well. <laughs> so if you need a house, <laughs> it's on Instagram, House from Jenny. <laughs> but yeah, thanks again for doing it. Whenever we get back through Vegas, we'll definitely be popping into one of your spots. Had a great time at the at the first one. So, but yeah, wish you guys the the best with the reopening. Stay in touch if there's anything that you need from me. You know, standing invitation to anybody who comes on the podcast if they got to come back if they wind up opening a new restaurant that they want to plug or talk about the concept behind or new menu or stuff like that. So, don't hesitate to reach out. It was such a pleasure. Thank you, Ray. Thanks again to Chef Sheridan Sue for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his schedule in the morning there. And I think his wife was doing stuff too as well. She kind of pops up towards the end there. Uh, she's a realtor. So if you're moving to Vegas and you need a realtor, make sure to, to hit him up and hit her up. Wife Jenny there. Make sure to follow him on Instagram. Like I said, at Chef Sheridan Sue, at Fat Choy LV, and at Eat Every Grain are his restaurants because he's no longer involved with Flock and Fowl, even though Flock and Fowl was, was great. Just, you know, difference of business strategy and everything. So that's kind of why they split up. Up, but he might be able to bring that back. I'm not sure if, if he owns like the naming rights to it or if that all got separated or something. I didn't really ask, but it, it kind of doesn't really matter. So, but he probably will incorporate a lot of those dishes on other menus as he opens, you know, if he opens other restaurants and things of that nature. So make sure to follow them all on Instagram. Make sure to follow Spoon Mob on Instagram at Spoon Mob. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. It's at Spoon Mob One, I think, on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, somebody had at Spoon Mob taken on Twitter. We don't do too much with those. Uh, they're all linked to the Instagram and everything. We're not not currently on TikTok or anything like that. Maybe that'll be something in the future. You know, if Ben or Katie wants to do that, more than welcome to it. I mean, I can help support if need be, but uh, make sure to check out past episodes of Chefs and Guests. Last week, you know, Brandon Grissetti was on the podcast, owner of Pigeon up in Vancouver. We've had Thatcher Baker Briggs, a SOM, runs a private wine consulting out there too as well. We've had some Kendi Warden, who runs uh, the wine education website, The Grape Grind. She also does blind tasting. So if that's something that you're looking to set up for like a get together or something like that, make sure to reach out to her. Some Greg Stokes over at Veritas and Accent, uh, the wine shop that just uh, opened up downtown. And we got a bunch more on the way. We got a bunch of chefs, some stuff recorded, some others lined up. So we're just going to keep putting them out every Thursday until we kind of run out. And then we'll take a break and reset and, and get more. Like I've said before, you know, we're trying to do at least, you know, 25, 26 of these, kind of one for every other week, you know, 52 weeks in a year. But 
I think we'll get past that, uh, which would be awesome, kind of surpass that goal. And, you know, we're appreciative of everybody who's listening, everybody who's, you know, downloading the podcast, helping spread the word and everything too as well. So uh, if you're new to Spoon Mob, make sure to check out the website, spoonmob.com. Something new always goes up every week, pretty much either it's a new chef profile, course pictures, stuff like that, wine breakdowns too as well. There's a section for there if you're looking for a wine recommendation or something like that and nothing strikes your fancy from, you know, whatever the Somalis recommended uh, when they were on the podcast. So check all that stuff out. Make sure, like I said, go back through catalog. Let's do Parts Unknown. Me and Ben rewatch Anthony Bourdain episodes. We're about halfway through it now. So check that out. There's some old restaurant reviews in there too as well. Just taking a break from those. Might bring those back in like a different format or something like that. Just not sure. Kicked around that idea. But right now it's going to mainly be the Parts Unknown series and Chefs and Guests. You know, we'll go from there. And I got some other ideas floating around. You know, want to keep doing what we're doing so far. Really appreciative, everybody. There's always more stuff on the way. So really happy with how everything's going so far. We had a magazine article thing come out in Columbus Monthly, the July issue. So check that out. Post it on Instagram too as well. But a lot of good stuff in that magazine. So shout out to Aaron Edwards and everybody at Columbus Monthly for the, the little feature and hopefully be able to link up with them again too sometime in the future or what have you. You know, we're a little past a, a year into doing this. You know, with the chef interviews, we're a little over six months in. So really happy with how everything's, you know, come together. More stuff on the way. Really appreciate everybody listening. Continue to help spread the word and we will talk to you guys next week.